Well, dear friends, would you take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 34. And we'll be reading together the first half, really, of the chapter, moving all the way through verse 21. 2 Chronicles 34, 1 to 21. Before we read, let us seek the Lord together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come eager as Your servants to listen to Your voice. We come as those who know that Your Word is life, that it is light to us. And Lord, we pray that You would meet with us and sanctify us by Your Word, this very truth of God. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Chronicles 34, this is God's Word. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned thirty-one years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and walked in the ways of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David his father. And in the twelfth year he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim, and the carved and the metal images. And they chopped down the altars of the Baals in his presence, and he cut down the incense altars that stood above them. And he broke in pieces the Asherim and the carved and the metal images, and he made dust of them and scattered it over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, And as far as Naphtali, in their ruins all around, he broke down the altars and beat the Asherim and the images into powder and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. Now in the eighteenth year of his reign, when he had cleansed the land and the house, he sent Shaphan, the son of Zioiah, and Maaseah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Jehoaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. They came to Hilkiah the high priest and gave him the money that had been brought into the house of God, which the Levites, the keepers of the threshold, had collected from Manasseh and Ephraim and from all the remnant of Israel and from all Judah and Benjamin and from the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And they gave it to the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord. And the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord gave it for repairing and restoring the house. They gave it to the carpenters and the builders to buy quarried stone and timbers for binders and beams for the buildings that the kings of Judah had let go to ruin. And the men did the work faithfully. Over them were set Jehoth and Obadiah the Levites, the sons of Merari and Zechariah and Meshulam, the sons of the Kohathites, to have oversight. The Levites, all who were skillful with instruments of music, were over the burden bearers and directed all who did work in every kind of service. And some of the Levites were scribes and officials and gatekeepers. When they were bringing out the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. Then Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. Shaphan brought the book to the king and further reported to the king. All that was committed to your servants, they are doing. 
They have emptied out the money that was found in the house of the Lord and have given it into the hand of the overseers and the workmen. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it before the king. And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah, Ahakim the son of Shaphan, Abdon the son of Micah, Shaphan the secretary, Aaseah the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me, and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. Well, thus far, God's holy word, and may He bless it and seal His truth to our hearts. In uh, late 1946 or early 1947, there was a teenage shepherd boy in search of a stray goat, and he stumbled onto the opening in the side of a cliff near the northwestern rim of the Dead Sea. Like any young boy, he thought the cave was cool, and supposedly took a rock and threw it into the cave, only to hear the shattering of pots. So he thought it would be worth checking out. Thus later he and a friend entered the cave, and they found a large collection of clay jars, inside of which were a bunch of scrolls. Now, the guys didn't know what they had found, uh, so they took the scrolls to an antiquities dealer to be appraised. That dealer was intrigued, and he sent the boys back to the cave in search of more treasures, which they found. The appraiser also didn't know what he was seeing, but he bought the artifacts for chump change and then sold them for a better price. Well, suddenly, word starts getting around that a great discovery had been made. And when the experts got in on it, they saw scrolls in abundance in ancient Hebrew, This was the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Most of you have probably heard of these. From 1947 to 1956, in 11 different caves, some 950 different manuscripts were found. Some of these were Jewish sectarian works, some intertestamental or apocryphal pieces, but at least a fragment of nearly every Old Testament book was discovered, amounting to 230 biblical manuscripts. In fact, among all the material, there was a scroll of the entire book of Isaiah, 24 feet long, 17 sheets of parchment making it up. And the other amazing thing about that discovery of Isaiah was this scroll dated back to 125 B.C., which is at least a thousand years older than any previously discovered manuscript. Needless to say, this was a monumental find. And one that put the kibosh, by the way, on the liberal scholars about Isaiah. Liberal scholars had always said that Isaiah was written by three different books or three different people making three different books. But here, a century before Jesus is even born, is one book. Imagine that. The liberals got it wrong. Well, in our text tonight, we have another discovery. It's a find of something that goes back even farther than Isaiah. And before we get to it, we consider the circumstances. 
of a newly crowned king sitting on Judah's throne. I want you to see three things with me as we make our way through our text. First, see with me right in Yahweh's eyes in verses 1-7. to As we come back to Chronicles, we remember that the last nearly 60 years in Judah's history have been a sad tale. After Hezekiah's reforms and the deliverance God brought uh, the kingdom, Jerusalem in particular, from Assyria, Manasseh took the throne and directed it straight towards destruction. Idolatry was pervasive. The true worship of the Lord in the temple almost completely stopped as even the courts of the Lord were given to pagan gods. And for nearly 50 years, Manasseh led the people in covenant rebellion. But you remember, after that humiliating defeat, dragged away to Babylon, thrown in a dungeon, the wicked king Manasseh humbled himself, cried out in repentance, and the Lord saved him. Manasseh is restored to the throne, and he tries to begin to fix everything that he had done wrong. But it's evident after his death that his attempts at reform just didn't take. Ammon, his son, is actually even willing to go to the city dump and find the gods that Manasseh had thrown away and put them back. Such impudence in the face of God's inestimable kindness stirs up more judgment. And Ammon is struck down in his house after only a two-year reign. Now such a short reign from a 20-something-year-old king inevitably means the next son in David's line is probably going to be really young. And that's exactly what we find when eight-year-old Josiah is made king by the people of the land. Now what kind of king will he be? Because he assumes the throne in a cauldron of wickedness. Idolaters fill the city. Pagan images litter the land from the very house of God into the outskirts of David's realm. And no doubt, Judah is ripe for judgment. Yet amidst the sea of darkness, the Lord suddenly brings a light. Josiah, who would reign 31 years, we're told, verse 2, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in His ways, the ways of David his father. And he didn't turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Now, this summary of Josiah's devotion in verse 2 reflects on Josiah really after he's grown up. Because we're going to get a record of slow growth, of the cords of steadfast love drawing Josiah in to worship the only true God. Look at verse 3. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, probably 15 years old or so, he began to seek the God of David, his father. Now, of course, if you're curious like me, you probably wonder, well, what was going on in the first eight years of his reign? Well, it's likely that royal advisors ran the show. And while there were people in the land who didn't like Josiah's father, Ammon, and therefore killed him, the guardians of the king just kept the status quo. They didn't see Ammon's assassination as a sign of God's anger, and they didn't do anything about removing idolatry. So evil practices become more entrenched, eight more years of wickedness. But something changes with Josiah as he moves towards manhood and starts having mature thoughts. Now, interestingly, we're, giving, we're given zero information about Josiah's formative years, about his influences, about his routines and religious devotion. 
Did the memory of his grandfather Manasseh's salvation have some impact on him? Was there a godly priest giving tutelage to the young king? We simply don't know. Because from the writer's perspective, as Josiah is surrounded by an apostate people, he just began to seek the Lord. Now, brethren, what does that tell us? Well, it tells us something of the sovereign mercy of God. You see, it's possible to be mired in a muck of generational sin. It's possible to be surrounded by the worst of humanity and the Lord take you and pluck you as a brand from the burning for His own glory. You can have a wicked apostate father and still be a trophy of God's amazing grace. Because the Lord is pleased as He sees fit to reach into godless houses and ransom souls, awaken the dead, and draw a sinner to Himself. He's done this before. How old was Abram before the Lord saved him? He was a 75-year serial idolater. And the Lord rescued him by sovereign grace. He did this with Rahab the prostitute. She's encompassed in a world of hostile pagans in Jericho. But upon hearing of God's great works, she seeks the Lord and confesses Him as the only God of heaven and earth. Well, Josiah likewise is swimming among sinners growing up in a culture of apostasy, and then suddenly, he seeks the God of David. Brethren, as we hear this, we should be encouraged by the sovereign display of God's grace to open the eyes of the blind. We should also see and be encouraged that the Lord will not leave Himself without a witness. He smashes hearts of stone and gives faith and repentance even in the ugliest of times. Indeed, we have not reached the climactic expression that Jesus will make, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But that concept is already true in the Old Covenant. God will not permit His people to vanish. He's promised to be God to a people. He's promised to bring, bring a Redeemer for a people. He's promised to intervene in the very line of David. So the church will never perish. Abraham, according to God's promise, will have a multitude in the future who will stand in his faith by the grace of God. So just Josiah here, brethren, is a testimony of God's faithfulness. Further, he's a testimony of God's great power. Sin, however thick and pervasive, however ugly its expressions, and engaging in fertility worship and slaughtering your children in the fire to false gods is about as ugly as it can get. But sin in its power can't snuff out the Lord's saving light. The Lord can save anyone. He can save old men when they seemingly squandered their lives in sickening deeds, Manasseh. He can save young men who have only known the practice of perverse things, Josiah. The point here is no situation is too dark for God to act. No pit is too low in which the Lord can't sink and rescue people. God's grace is amazing. And as Josiah finds grace, as Josiah shows that he's been awakened by grace because he seeks the Lord, we also see something of our God's nature. You know, the Lord could have given Judah over to total destruction right here. They've been on the fast track to destruction 
for 75 years. So they deserve to be squashed. But the Lord doesn't do that. He gives him a godly king. Doesn't that tell us something about the heart of our God? That as Isaiah puts it, he longs to be gracious. That God is long-suffering. He's not quick to wrath. He's still appealing to this nation to turn. So He gives them what they absolutely do not deserve. A good ruler. A man who's going to do the hard work to bring reformation. What kindness is in the Lord? Brethren, the mercy that you see in God here should incline our hearts to seek Him. Because the kindness of God, as Paul says, should lead us to repentance. Don't get impatient in these dark days that we live in as though all is lost. All is never lost with this God. He preserves His people and He's in the business of saving sinners. That's an amazing truth. Well, like Josiah, like the spiritual journey is for us, there's gradual growth in this young man. In the eighth year on the throne, he starts seeking the Lord. And then in the twelfth year on the throne, around 19 years old, presumably when he's leaving behind his former counselors, in the verse 3, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim, and the carved and the metal images. Now you remember Manasseh, after his conversion, started a purge of idolatry in the temple first and then in Jerusalem. But he never got beyond the holy city and his son Ammon put it all back. But with young Josiah, we're seeing action reaching even farther. His cleansing work, yes, it's taking place at the temple, but it reaches into Judah as a whole and not just Jerusalem. And listen to the violence of the verbs in verses 4 and following. Baal altars were chopped down. Incense altars cut down. The Asherim broken in pieces. He made dust of them and scattered it over the graves of those who had sacrificed them. In, In other words, he defiled the graves of these idolaters, indicating they were deplorable people. Verse 5, he also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. Additionally, Josiah took his smashing altars work into the areas of the fallen northern kingdom that was still the land of Israel. He broke down altars, beat Asherim and images into powder, cut down incense altars in Manasseh, Ephraim, Simeon, and as far as Naphtali. No one has been that extensive in trying to bring reform. Josiah is not interested in halfway devotion. In the syncretism of his fathers where they tolerate the traditional high places and they blend a little bit of Canaanite custom with Yahweh's worship. No, that won't do. He wants thorough loyalty to the Lord. Never since the days of of Joshua himself have we heard of such a violent striking against these emblems of satanic seduction. You remember what's really behind these images. It's demons. And he strikes them down just as Moses had commanded. Now, brethren, what are we to learn here? Well, perhaps the key principle is that sin should be shown no mercy, no quarter, 
No toleration at all. Indeed, doesn't Jesus and the apostles likewise, don't they call us to a holy violence against sin? If your right eye causes you to sin, what are you supposed to do? Pluck it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away from you. Put to death the misdeeds of the body. Crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. Take up your cross daily. Do you hear the all-consuming devotion that the Lord demands and the violent acts against sin? Brethren, do we grasp that this is what faithfulness looks like? It looks like ceding no ground to sin. It looks like searching our hearts for idols and cutting all of them off. It looks like discerning. Is there anything standing in the way of my devotion to God in hindering my worship and then getting rid of that thing? Beloved, are we concerned to give God all of ourselves, casting off the sin that clings so closely? Are we willing to smash anything that hinders our loyalty to the Lord and ready to pursue biblical religion no matter what it costs us? That's what God requires. And when we get to the new covenant, it doesn't change. Jesus says, if you love father or mother or wife or children more than me, you're not worthy of me. You must be wholly devoted to me. Was that our attitude? Driven by the grace of God. Now, as we read this about Josiah, let's remember a couple of more things. He didn't accomplish all of this in one day or one month or one year. He increasingly, as he sought the Lord, came to see what stood against true devotion. And as a leader, he labored for reform slowly, no doubt amidst resistance. Isn't that how it should be in our lives? Little by little, wanting to reform everything about ourselves to please the Lord. Shouldn't it be how we are as a church? Little by little, reforming to please the Lord. And then secondly, back to the summary of his life. Back up in verse 2. We're told he walked in the ways of David his father, and he didn't turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Now, Hezekiah is the only king in Chronicles of whom we're told he walked in David's ways. But this language of not turning aside, not deviating to the right or to the left, echoes words the Lord gave to Joshua. That he should not turn aside from the book of the law to the right hand or to the left. And then Joshua told the people. What's the sense of the, this expression? With Josiah, it, it doesn't mean he's a sinless man. No one is sinless save Jesus. But it means he was all in. He was thorough on doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Beloved, is that the way that we live? Are we aiming to please Christ in every way because we're not our own? We've been bought with a price. This is what honors God, to do what is right in His eyes. Well, then secondly, see with me. Repairing the temple. Verses 8-13. to 13. <clears throat> Now the second section of the chapter is something of a prelude to the significant discovery but before we get to that, the chronicler, I think, points out some helpful things. First, notice when the temple repair began. Verse 8. 
Now in the 18th year of Josiah's reign, he's now in his mid-20s, when he had cleansed the, the land and the house. I already mentioned to you that Josiah's growth is progressive. It's slow and steady, we might say. He didn't fix everything at once. That would be impossible. But he keeps chipping away. In his life, there is a movement toward more and more godliness. That is exactly the way it should be with us. As we grow in Christ, we make further strides year by year to live to the glory of the Lord. Now, sometimes, if you're anything like me, and I assume that you are, sometimes you feel like you're not making very much progress. Sometimes in your fight against sin, you're warring with stuff for years. Well, so too was Josiah. This attack on idols is a half-decade endeavor, and that's before he even gets to fixing stuff in the temple. But he keeps seeking to bring himself and his people into conformity with God's law. Yes, the movement is slow, but do we see progress? Are we striving for progress? Is today outstripping yesterday? You're never going to reach perfection in this life. But are you even willing to army crawl? That's the language that Calvin uses when he talks about this. So that you make a little bit of progress in your journey towards glory. Is there a desire to labor and toil and wrestle against every incursion of sin so that you keep hacking at the root and you just don't quit? That's Josiah's perspective. And then second in this section, notice the biblical ethic of battling sin and being renewed in righteousness. Josiah is putting to death idolatry, breaking, smashing, grinding to dust, burning. But then he's also putting on what pleases the Lord. He doesn't stop evil and then replace it with nothing. He doesn't only think, aim to destroy stuff because in the vacuum of the nothingness, you might start doing something else that's dishonorable. If I put it in our wives, you might quit smoking and start drinking. You might quit drinking and then start some other indulgence comforting yourself with food or sex or binge-watching something to escape the emptiness inside. The biblical pattern of godliness isn't just to stop doing something. It's to put to death what is earthly within you and put on what is godly. Remove the defilement, take away the old leaven, and then be renewed by pursuing what honors the Lord. And that renewal, according to Romans 12, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be, be continually transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's an ongoing process. So we strive against sexual immorality, which is the first deed of the flesh in Galatians 5. And then we put on love, which is the first fruit of the Spirit. We tackle fits of anger by letting the peace of Christ rule us. We strike down complaint by learning to be content. And all of this implies... Effort, labor, that's what Josiah is engaged in. He's not doing this to earn favor with God. The Lord has saved him, and he wants to honor God in his life. And that's why he pursues it with hard work. We must do the same thing. We work out our salvation because God is at work in us to will and to work according to his good pleasure. But then take notice here as well that Josiah isn't doing all of this alone. Now that was implied before, but in the temple restoration it becomes explicit. 
He sends, verse 8, Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and Maaseiah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Jehoahaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. And these three men are helping. They're collecting money to make temple repairs, which also tells us that more people are involved because the people are giving money. And then these people take the money to Hilkiah, the high priest. Further, it's also evident that the Levites are involved in collecting the money. Again, more people. In fact, the money collected is said to be coming, verse 9, from Manasseh and Ephraim, and from all the remnant of Israel, and from all Judah and Benjamin, and from the inhabitants of Jerusalem. It's easy to miss the significance of that, but the chronicler is saying, while the northern kingdom has been overtaken by Assyria and fallen, there is a remnant of faithful people there still committed to the Lord. I don't know what you've heard on the History Channel, but I can tell you the ten tribes were not lost. They're there. God is preserving them. And He's stirring them up with a faithful endeavor to seek the one place He's truly worshipped, the temple. There's unity in true worship. That's a real message to the Chronicler's audience. They must not permit the customs of their conquerors, the Persians, or later the Greeks or Romans, to make them lose their sense of devotion to God at His temple with His people. Yes, you may be surrounded by pagans, but set your hearts on true worship. Isn't that relevance to us? Yeah, you may be surrounded by pagans, but set your heart to worship the true God. But still picking up the theme of many helping. We've got royal advisors. We've got a high priest and the Levites. We've got people from all over giving funds. We've got carpenters and builders, that is, woodcutters and stoneworkers. They care, verse 11, for the buildings that the king of Judah had let go to ruin. And the men did the work faithfully. Then additionally, we hear of Levites overseeing things and those bearing burdens, which is menial work, those skilled with instruments and those giving every kind of service by giving direction to the people. Isn't this a picture of how things are supposed to be among God's covenant people, the new covenant people of the church? We don't all have the same gifts. We don't have the same calling. But whatever God has given us, whatever ability, if it's ability to work with wood or stone or overseeing money or singing or doing menial tasks or administrating things, we use all of these things to bring glory to God and to do His people good. The church is built up into conformity with Christ as every part does its work. Are we all doing our work? Every part has a role to play. Do you understand that you are contributing to the overall spiritual health of God's people by laboring here in some way for the glory of God? And do you recognize their mutual dependence on one another in this endeavor? The carpenters need the stone cutters. The administrators need the burden bearers. Well, likewise in the church, none of us can say to one another, I don't need you. No, we all need each other. Because we labor together, we show mutual concern for one another, we engage in godly living and true worship with an eye to one another. There is no lone ranger Christianity. The life of service to Christ, the life of fighting the devil, resisting sin, coming out of the world, shining as light, speaking the truth, bearing one another's burdens, it's a life in community. And that's what we're seeing here. Josiah, as a leader, is stirring up the people 
to live in community to serve God. And we should note the influence of a godly leader here on other people. He provokes his fellow Israelites to love and good deeds. That's exactly what we should do. If the Lord has given us in this church roles of leadership, we should use our place to strengthen others and involve them in the pursuit of the things of the Lord. We should cultivate togetherness in serving God and in knowing Him. Brother, may we do that. We'll finally see this remarkable find in verses 14 to 21. In the midst of repairing the temple, Hilkiah, verse 14, found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. Now, scholars, as they like to argue about everything, like to argue about what exactly it was that was found. Um, But Scripture uses this phrase, the book of the law, in reference to the law of Moses and to, more particularly, the book of Deuteronomy. And you can see that in Deuteronomy 28, 29, 30, and 31. But that raises some questions, doesn't it? How do you lose Deuteronomy? How long has it been missing? Did someone not notice that Deuteronomy is missing? Well, obviously, the only way you could lose Deuteronomy was if God's Word had been totally pushed into the background of life. Now, we know if we look back to the days of Manasseh, particularly his early days when he began replacing true worship with pagan worship in the temple, and the temple became a free-for-all for idolatry, we know that it's very likely when the people of God would gather for a feast, they no longer read the Bible. That just ceased to become important to them. The scroll of Deuteronomy probably got stuffed in a back room somewhere like those pictures of you from the 70s and 80s that you don't want anybody to see. And if we do the math, the Word of God has had no public place in the national life of His people for about 75 years. Doesn't that make Josiah's conversion all the more striking? There may have been some preservation of like the story of the Exodus and some of the Psalms of David, but Josiah doesn't have complete biblical guidance. Think of it like this. It would be trying to, like trying to live the Christian life without Romans or Hebrews. But God had still kept Josiah and He had supplied what they lacked and taught them. And yet before we think about the response to this discovery, we should all note the aim of the devil with regard to the Word. Satan wants the Word of God to have no place in our lives. He wants any consciousness of what Scripture says to vanish. He labors for that in the public square, but don't just think of it in society. He labors for that among the professed people of God. The devil wants to drag you into other things so that you don't listen to Scripture. So that you have no ear to hear the shepherd's voice. He's done this in the modern church where they don't read the Bible, they don't pray the Bible, they don't sing the Bible, they scarcely even talk about the Bible, they don't preach the Bible. But it's easy to launch salvos at them, isn't it? Some of us, may not have actually lost our Bibles. But is Satan working in such a way that we neglect the Word? Are our Bibles stuffed in a back room somewhere, unread, 
collecting dust? Do we claim to know Christ and have no idea what He actually says? That is not faithfulness. And it leads to all manner of sin. Because the moment you start, you stop paying close attention to Scripture, and you start coming up with all kinds of ways to worship and all kinds of ways to conduct your life that are of your own invention, you're going to go off the rails. We need to take heed to ourselves. Now, we don't live in a time where there was just a scroll in the temple. Or like in the early church when the, the preacher perhaps would have a box where the Scriptures were kept. Brethren, we have more access to God's Word right now than any other time in the history of God's people. But more Bibles won't do us any good if we don't actually pick them up and read them. Take up and read, beloved. This Word, as Moses puts it, is not an idle word for you. It is your life. Hilkiah gives the book to Shaphan. Shaphan takes it to the king. After giving an update on repair work, he reads it to the king. And then comes the anguish, verse 19. The king, when he heard the words of this law, he tore his clothes. An outward sign of grief. Mourning for sin. Josiah had been busy in the work of reform, but he didn't know the extent to which they were violating God's law. He didn't know all the threats of curse for disobedience. What they had been doing for years was a great offense to God, worthy of destruction. And Josiah doesn't claim ignorance is an excuse. He doesn't shrug off their sin. Oh, we didn't know. No, he trembles before God. And he immediately seeks a word from God about what to do. He sends five royal officials, verse 21, to inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left. Why? Because great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us. Not that was, not that will be. That is Josiah sees we're already experiencing God's wrath because our fathers aren't keeping the word. And yet, there's a note of hope here. If God's wrath is already falling, doesn't that mean everything is pointless? Should Josiah just stop repairing the temple and not worry about reformation anymore because they've been disregarding the word previously? Well, no, he, he doesn't do that because he believes something about God. Namely, that there is mercy with him. He believes the Lord will hear the prayers of the penitent and give direction. Is that what we believe? You know, maybe tonight, maybe we've lived in ways that are contrary to the book. Maybe we failed to pay attention to Scripture and suddenly we've recognized it. I'm standing against what God has said. What shall we do? We can make excuses. I didn't know, and just move on with life. We could think, you know, those are words for a bygone era. And I'm doing just fine with the way that I live my life. I'll keep doing it my way. I'll follow my traditions. I'll follow my heart. Well, there have been many in history who tried that. Think of, think of Israel not listening to Moses. Think of Ahab not listening to Elijah. Think of the Pharisees not listening to Jesus. How did it go for them? Oh, dear friends, let us revel in the kindness of a speaking Lord and listen to Him. Let us take up His Word, tremble before that Word, and conform our lives to whatever God tells us.
because this is what love to the Lord does. May we be found to be a people who truly love the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, you tell us in your word that you oppose the proud, but give grace to the humble. Lord, we pray we'd humble ourselves before you and seek you. Lord, we pray particularly that we would seek you in your word. Lord, give us a hunger and a thirst to pursue the truth as it's revealed in the scripture and to see not only our sin, but the remedy that is Christ the Lord who came to save sinners. Father, we thank you for your kindness, your long-suffering with us, and we pray that you would help us to outstrip yesterday with today's pursuits of reform and seeking to love you. And we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus and all of God's people said, Amen.